mate. This is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down this hill. Hit him. Hit him. It's more than just a hobby. It's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter podcast. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of The Educated Hunter. This week's episode is brought to you by, well not specifically brought to you by anyone really, it's all about our New Zealand Himalayan tar and the battle we're in right now to essentially stop our Department of Conservation culling a huge number of tar without any kind of vigorous scientific evidence to back it up. If you are unaware of this issue or need updates on this issue, go to the New Zealand Tar Foundation Facebook page. They are continually updating what's going on. Unfortunately, it's very hard because of me and Curran's schedule to release podcasts that are really on point with what's going on in the now. You'll be hearing this a number of weeks in the future. However, I guarantee there'll be something going on. The battle will be continuing and where we're, where we're at with that battle, uh, right now we're optimistic that we are making some headway, but the New Zealand Tar Foundation Facebook page is the best place to go. So get along, read what's happening. If you haven't already, go to their Give a Little page and donate. There's a link on the Facebook page there and donate to help essentially save and manage our New Zealand Tar Logically, we're not asking for much. We are asking for uh, control and management based on real science, and not a eradication program in disguise. So the New Zealand tar and the fight for, well, the fight against the the current minister of conservation. Um, she, I think she has some pretty misled and misguided, at least very personal views on what. Um, tar and other introduced game species in New Zealand represent. In her mind, I think she she refers to them more often than not as pests and they need to be exterminated. In a perfect world, she would exterminate them, whereas most hunters and most New Zealanders actually see them more as a, as a resource and part of our culture. So we want to manage that resource logically that balances out uh, between recreational hunting, commercial hunting, uh, and also with our alpine environment. The big thing is she's claiming they're destroying the alpine environment. That is just not true. Uh, the alpine environment, we don't know how many tar is too many tar, and we don't know how many tar we have. So until we know that, we can't make a logical decision. Her knee-jerk reaction to cull huge numbers of Himalayan tar um, in the name of the in the name of conservation is a farce. So... If you don't know anything about it, jump on the Tar Conserva- or the Tar Foundation Facebook page, have a read. If you haven't already, donate. Enjoy the podcast. This week's podcast was recorded in the Yukon, and it's with a really good friend of mine and one of my original mentors in the hunting industry, Joel Wilkinson. Joel Wilkinson is the outfitter for Caesar Lake Outfitters, but before he took over his family's business, he was basically a... 320 day plus a year professional guide and trapper so he has more stories than you can shake a stick at and more experience than you can shake a stick at in terms of international guiding experience he spent a lot of time and years actually guiding in New Zealand both estate and free range he has some pretty strong opinions on what's happening with our tar in New Zealand based on some real experience A, hunting them in New Zealand, and then B, with some international context about what they're worth as an outfitter, uh, which was really interesting. And Joel is one of those guys who is a gentleman of the industry. He has an awesome crew that works for him, as well as a large number of return customers going through his outfit. He manages his area with passion. He looks after his animals like most Yukon and BC Outfitters do, but he really is passionate about looking after his animals, making sure that he harvests mature trophy animals that don't impact the population, um, and he delivers a really high-end product. So Joel was a great 
It was a great chat with Joel, actually. Uh, we were sort of under the pump a little bit for timing, and you can hear a few vehicles and stuff in the background. That's just the reality of outfitting in Canada. Things are happening everywhere. Planes flying overhead, motorbikes come and going. We were in, we recorded it in a trailer, so like a, a caravan type thing in his yard. So uh, there were things happening all around us. So I apologize for the background noise, but I did manage to snag him for about an hour. And the conversation itself was an interesting one, and I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. So first of all, thanks for taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy. Oh yeah, and of course, absolutely. Bouncing back and forth. <laughs> and when I was sort of thinking about doing this podcast, it made me cast my mind back. And I've actually referred to you a couple of times and particularly with the one with Jordan I did yesterday, then podcasts about when we first met in New Zealand. Do you remember all back in those days? I do. Yeah. It's actually come up quite a few times and yeah. Yeah. No, that was, uh, unfortunately that was quite a while ago, but yeah, time flies. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's, it's over 10 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. I would have said eight, but yeah. Yeah. No, it was, well, it probably was eight years ago. It was 2006 I graduated. So it would have been 2007 and eight. Well, that's 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. Time flies. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> You've done a few laps around the world, and I've uh, done a few laps around the Yukon. But <laughs> Yeah, you have. Well, I mean, in those days, you were hunting, you are doing Yukon, and then you were trapping, and then show season. No, Yukon, then deer. Yeah, Alberta for mule deer, whitetail, moose, and then trapping, show season, then three to four months in New Zealand, and then back into it in the Yukon. Yeah, so that's basically 300 and something days. Yeah, I'd, well, I think we're on the same page here, but my best year of not staying at home was 28 days of actual home, nights at home. 28 days out of 365. Yeah, 28 nights in my own bed. <laughs> I don't know how many of those were consecutive, but not many. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Those nights are usually spread over a long period of time. Yeah. So... These days, I mean, in those days you were flat out guiding. These days you are running um, the outfit here, Seas Lake Outfitters. Mm -hmm. How's that transition been for you? It's been really good. Um, I think it was a lot easier because it's a family-run business. So my dad, him and I are very similar personalities and we think a lot alike. So it was quite easy to just pop in and uh, they're very trusting and all that to let me... Yeah, I just sort of jump in with my own ideas um, before I even, you know, officially became the new outfitter. So, yeah, this transition was amazing. I uh, was able to keep every single guide, um, which were some amazing guides. And that's really what makes my life easy is just having good, capable people that you don't have to worry about. Yeah, you've always got a good crew here. Yeah. And I've actually heard vicariously through other outfitters that, mm -hmm. you know, between you and me and the 15 people listening to this podcast, um, you know, they're envious of your your staff roster, your guide roster, and a lot yeah. of guys are, yeah. you know, career guys, which yeah. in this day and age is hard to find. It is. Particularly because you run a um, a varied, very, I'm oh, sorry, what am I trying to say? A variation of different hunts. So you have mm -hmm. horseback hunts, Argo hunts, mm -hmm. jet boat hunts, lake hunts, hovercraft hunts yeah <laughs> there's plenty of different equipment and elements to it so you need it works, works for everybody the cool thing is uh, i've got horse guides uh well my uncle he's guided i'm not even sure how many years but basically his whole entire life and yeah he did horses until his hips started bothering him at probably 59 years old 60 and then pops into an argo and he's probably got another 10 15 years in an argo like it's so you get that experience, just a different mode of, you know, hunting yeah, and exactly. yeah, that's great. Yeah. And you can even, even go into a lake hunt and go even easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he, well, he's still flying his plane and doing his thing. So he's still pretty. Very active. Very active. Yeah. I spent, um, I guess it was only 10 days with him, but it was mm -hmm. a, an entertaining 10 days. He's oh, yeah. certainly an entertaining dude. Oh yeah. Um, you better check that. Joel's got messages coming in. In reaches these days. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great, yeah. but uh, also it's uh, definitely, it makes your life busy. <laughs> well, how does it, it must be a, a big transition from being just a guide, one of the boys, to now having to look after and run everybody. Yeah, it's it's huge. Um, it went from worrying about getting your one hunter 
his one or two animals yeah. to all of a sudden worrying about 10 to 12 hunters in different locations, getting all their animals yeah. and totally out of your control, just putting capable people with them and hoping everything works out for them to have success. And, and yeah, and obviously success isn't everything, but just having a good trip too. So. Yeah. Well, again, another thing that's very evident with your outfit, Joel, is the number of return customers you have, mm-hmm. which, you know, me and Corinne, when we're looking at outfits to potentially send our ultimate OE guys to, it's one of the mm-hmm. key indicators for us mm-hmm. of how an outfit's run mm-hmm. because people who don't have return customers tend to be yeah. not only treating their customers, their mm-hmm. clients badly, but also their staff. Yeah. So it's it's certainly testament to what you know your mother and father have built and what you've continued. It's uh, impressive. Do you miss the bush yet? Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> I I love the outfitting lifestyle. I love it all. There's some real, real fun parts to it where things are going good. You're hearing from all the camps. Guys are happy. Moose are rutting sheep or where they're supposed to be goats are low on the mountain all that fun stuff so you're hearing all the success stories like i'm hearing 10 success stories um so that's exciting as an outfitter but uh i miss being out in camp just not having to worry about much other than yeah you're one hunter and just yeah. like finding animals for the day so yeah I'm trying to describe it to people like your biggest worry is what times are getting light which way is the wind going is it raining yeah, your biggest worries of the yeah. day, right? And then yeah. you've got to make a decision based on where you're going to go, and then you yeah. just hunt. It's a pretty simple, yeah, existence. It is, yeah. I mean, it's you've a, got to keep your client happy, and everybody's yeah. slightly different, but it is very simple compared to you know I've spent a couple of days on the outside with you here, and there's planes going everywhere, and people coming in and out, and yeah, torching themselves with gas and dislocating their shoulders and cutting <laughs> their fingers off, and all that fun stuff that comes along with the territory. Yeah, yeah, it is a total total different pace and uh yeah as a guide it it is it's a lot of fun and your plan may change like oh the wind's blowing this way so we're gonna go this way instead of what i went to bed thinking we would do you know and wake up oh it's different so let's go do something different yeah yeah with the outfitting thing it's oh this lake froze so we'll move those guys over here and oh that river's low so these guys go over here and oh the weather's bad in this camp for the plane so we can't pick them up first you know the plane goes the opposite way which adds to it's just it's busy yeah it is really busy it's It's logistics 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 absolute logistic nightmare some days and and it's really nice working with uh obviously uh some of the more experienced guides that have dealt with it all and they do throw me the odd suggestion which definitely you know, when your head's spinning, it's nice to get some good expertise, good which helps. Yeah. And pilots too. Um, having yeah. good, capable pilots are great. They can say, "Well, that's not really worth your time. Do it that way. Do it this way." You know, check out these camps, and yeah, it's a little more useful, a little quicker doing it this way. And so everybody works together, and it comes together really good. Okay, so I guess we probably should have started for this, but a, a lot of people listening in New Zealand might not know exactly what a a Yukon outfitter does. So can you give us a sort of a brief outline of how you hunt, what you hunt and what works? Yeah. So just, uh, yeah, kind of a quick recap. So in the Yukon, there are 22 designated outfitting concessions, though the whole entire Yukon is divided into these concessions. Uh, I think right now there are currently 18 outfitters uh, using these concessions, a few are taken back and just made public hunting grounds. Uh, in these concessions, we are the sole, we're, we're the only people allowed to actually take non-residents hunting. If you're a resident of the Yukon, you can hunt within these concessions, but anybody outside of the Yukon has to go through us and be guided. Uh, so in our concession, it is approximately 8.9 million acres. Uh, there is no living person or no person living within this entire area. 8.9 million. 8.9 million. Um, and uh, yeah, just a huge chunk of land, no towns, nothing. There's two trappers that spend the winter uh, for about three months out there. And that's the only kind of permanent residency we have. The rest is wide open wilderness. And, uh, yeah, we get to, I, I'm pretty lucky in our part of the world. Uh, we, we get to manage our animals. I get to, I only have a few quotas on different species, but moose and caribou, 
on sheep, I have no quotas, so I get to outright determine what I'm going to take and what's sustainable and, you know, for trophy class, age class, all so that. So from your perspective, from that management side, it's within your interest to make sure there's lots of big mature animals in your area? Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Like, I'm, we're in it for long haul. It's our family's income, our lifestyle, everything. So we would just be shooting ourselves in the foot if we we're, you know, just taking more than there you can handle so no we're we have a vested interest we look after it we spend a lot of months in the winter two to three months of cold weather trapping which i love trapping but when it's cold and it's nice to not actually have to go out when it's 30 or 40 below but when you have uh, to control wolves and other predators it's you have to get out there and do that so by keeping the predator numbers down you see a, a marked increase in in what just general animals or calf survivability or what are you targeting there yeah definitely calf survival but uh we're, we're targeting old mature bulls generally on the top end of their their life cycle which would be more acceptable to predation after the rut beat up poor condition all of a sudden you get a bad winter and you know if they were left alone they might make it through the winter you have a couple wolves chasing them around or grizzly bear or something like that yeah they're their chances decrease a lot and then obviously the no-brainer is the calves that's yeah there's uh wolves do a lot of calf predation and black bears and grizzlies which we we really can't control other than just hunters you know shooting them on opportunity basis but the wolves we can manage so we do that yeah cool so in the 8.9 million acres on average how many moose do you shoot a year because moose would probably be moose and caribou would be two higher frequency animals Yes. So how many do you shoot? We do 25 moose a year on average, and that's approximately 28 hunters. So we have a few people that don't take moose, um, and that's, uh, yeah, it's it's hunting. You get the odd guy that just doesn't have an opportunity, which we'll make right. We'll usually bring them back. Some guys are a little pickier than others, and they might go home because they're looking for a bigger bull that they just never seen on their trip. And, uh, yeah, the odd bow hunter that just couldn't get within bow range. So. Right. But yeah, we're taking 25 bull moose. Uh, our population's estimated just a shade over 5,000 animals, and sustainable harvest is 4% of the population. Uh, we are literally the only harvesters in that entire area, so I'm can, not good at quick math, but yeah, we're well under what the area can sustain. What you can sustain. Well, that's pretty cool. And I've spent a little bit of time in your area flying around now. It's a pretty cool spot and you kill some pretty amazing moose mm -hmm. like really amazing in your opinion so this is a, a question as both outfitter and and guy that's done a lot of guiding what makes a, a good professional guide in the industry in north america um somebody that is capable capable in most scenarios uh, it's a very broad thing to say but people are reassured on a trip that maybe is not going so well with animal sightings or whatever in a capable person. They just feel more comfortable. So somebody with a little bit of common sense, practicality, good sense of humor, knows how to read people, you know, when somebody's having an off day, maybe not push their buttons or just give them a little extra space. And I think being a people reader is huge. And then, you know, showing a client that you're capable is huge. Yeah, because a lot of guys are quite nervous when they come up to it because the Yukon is sort of like this uh, um, this mystical place in the middle of nowhere and it's wilderness and we all mm -hmm. know that once you get out mm -hmm. that remote then when something goes bad it tends to go sideways mm -hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree what you're, what you're saying. If you turn up and you've got a guide that you feel confident can get you out of the shit mm -hmm. should you get in it, yeah, um, that does go a long way. Yeah, like it, it's when they hop in a plane and they go 140 miles over trees and wilderness, it's very overwhelming for somebody that's been working in an office in New York City and and it's hard for them to wrap their heads around it. And yeah, they get super nervous. So basically when they get off the plane and start talking to their guide and their guides just got a sense of calm and all that it uh, it goes a long ways yeah it becomes pretty obvious pretty quick you're not walking out of there yeah yeah that's for sure not in a hurry <laughs> yeah yeah so you mentioned trapping have can you run me through a what 
trapping means in the Yukon and B, why you enjoy it so much? Yeah, it's actually a, a little bit of a tough question. I love it. While I was out guiding, that's all I dreamed of doing was finishing up with hunting season, like not rush through it, but I couldn't wait to go trapping once I was done guiding. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's quiet. You're out by yourself or with a friend and, uh, yeah, just going putting around through the trees with the snow and everything's just quiet and calm. And, uh, when you're setting your traps out, you know, you're just going through the process. Every trap's different. There's a lot of variety. And then you leave everything and come back a few days later and I don't know, I describe it as like Christmas morning every time you go check your traps. Like, <laughs> you don't know what's there and how many. And there's obviously financial incentives for sure. And um, we have a few, like our Martin are actually worth quite a bit of money. So you can actually make money trapping in our part. And then there's animals like beaver that are not really worth anything, but it's they're actually really fun to try and catch. Like um, my, my brother-in-law, Jordan, who's um, a Kiwi and ended up moving here. So he got his trapping license and he was mind blown of his first trapping experience with beaver because the lake is frozen and drill a hole in the ice and you drop a trap down and somehow without seeing anything, you catch a beaver in your trap <laughs> and it, it it shocks me too even thinking yeah. about it but yeah you you can't see what's underneath the ice and yeah you drop a trap down with a little bit of piece of wood on a trigger and they swim along and find so you're it actually biting it with a bit of willow yeah yeah <laughs> like oh treat so it honestly i've caught i don't know how many beaver but i just it shocks me every time i catch one underneath yeah. the ice yeah no kidding <laughs> yeah without ice it's you, know, you can see your trap through the so, water and, Martin, what's a Martin? Uh, they're known as sable on the fur market. So a sable jacket, you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollar jackets. Um, that's oh. where they come from. Very expensive wow. fur. And uh, they're known as a, I think officially as a pine Martin. There right. be a big version of a stoat, I guess. Right. A ferret, like they a little bigger than a ferret. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're in the weasel family. And you're baiting them with meat. Yeah, so we use frozen beaver meat. That's a nice nice bait because it actually has a scent to it. It's really fatty. So even when it's 30 below, it still has a little scent. So you can throw a little chunk in a box, and then Martin has to go through your trap to get into the box. And they're kill traps. Everything is humane. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it kills them instantly. And then uh, some people prefer fish, but uh, fish is... Stinky. It's very stinky, hard to deal with. Your Uncle slimy. Don likes fish. Oh, yeah. He talked all about his fish bait. Oh, yeah. it's You'll call in animals from miles away, but, yeah, it's a little messy to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so you got your marten, you've got your wolves for predator control, which we've talked about, mm -hmm. beaver. What else? Wolverine? Yeah, we catch wolverine. Um, my current line is not the best wolverine line, but I do catch one or two. Um you need to get up in the higher country where my dad's line is up in our, some of our horseback camps where there's sheep and goats. Yeah. There's a lot of Wolverine up there. So you can catch six, eight, 10 of them in a the winter. Describe and, a Wolverine. I've literally had people tell me that they didn't know it was a real animal. <laughs> uh, they have a very, very big reputation. Um, they're very cool animals, but they've gotten a reputation for being this nasty little creature that can take on anything. And they're only, 30 to 40 pounds max. Uh, they're not a big animal. They're a weasel. They kind of look like a badger, but a little bit longer legs and they just hop along and yeah, they'll, they'll pester a black bear or grizzly till they don't want to mess around with them anymore, but they're not exactly aggressive. Right. Uh, they're not going to sneak up on you and pounce on you. They're, they're running away from you as soon as they see you. They're quite you, timid. You wouldn't want to grab one. No, <laughs> no, it'd be a little more than you could handle. They're lean, mean little machines for sure. Yeah, like I've actually physically seen uh, a wolverine on a moose kill. Just mm -hmm. like the bear, big grizzly bears there, and the wolverine's yeah. like, "Yeah, I'm going to fight for this." And the bear, you could literally mm -hmm. see it on his face. He's like, "Really? Just leave We're going to go through this. Just leave me alone. Yeah. I don't really come here to be asked." <laughs> and he'd run around, try and bite him on the ass, and then run around again and. Yeah. Stout little bastard. Just trying to grab a little chunk of meat and walk off. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're very persistent. Yeah. They're like a little pest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. What's your, in terms of your trapping, 
Have you had any close calls? What's your the most the scaredest you've ever been on your trap line? Does anything jump to mind? Um, yeah, I had one one scenario. Of course, you're by yourself. The weather's very cold. Uh, when you're younger, you definitely well, I trapped a little bit different than most older guys would trap. So I run a lot of rivers because it's easier to run on top of the ice versus cut trails along the side. So you can access a lot of country. Um, so, so the river's frozen and you're just running over the frozen river. Yeah. 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 So I'll travel a hundred kilometers up a river, which even at 30 below, quite a few parts of them won't freeze. So you have to be careful on where you go. You have to be able to tell those spots and, and, uh, sometimes you, you come over, come around the corner and, uh, you think you have a nice, perfect river that's, you know, got a nice cushion of snow on it. And you don't know that underneath the snow, two inches, it's water, which is water that comes on top of the ice. And we call it overflow. And that's when the weight of the snow on the ice pressures down on the ice, makes a crack. And then the water spurts up through the ice, but, uh, it comes up um, maybe six, eight inches on top of the ice, but doesn't break through the snow. So you can't see it. And you hit that with your snowmobile, then you're basically instantly stuck and your snowmobile will get three, 400 pounds of extra weight in its track and you struggle to get it out. It's a real big chore. So you have a few things like that. that really, yeah, they can make a, a very long, long day and wet and cold and but anyways, uh, yeah, with my story, um, my closest call was, uh, I was out trapping by myself and we had a lot of wolves running on the river that year. So I had a trail uh, at least a hundred kilometers up the river and, uh, they are killing moose. And so I was setting snares and all that. And, uh, and probably about 30 K up, I caught my first wolf in a snare and I just set him along the skidoo trail and on my way home, I just bring them home instead of hauling with me the rest of the day and and I got to the end of my line and within 300 yards of my last or last part of my hard established skidoo trail there was fresh wolves wolf tracks and it was uh snowing quite hard probably 25 below celsius like really almost a blizzard type of condition and I seen the tracks and they were fresh super fresh tracks so Anyways, I uh, unhooked my skimmer, which had my, like, a little toboggan, and I had my chainsaw in there, I had some traps, just random gear, and I tied my snowshoes onto my snowmobile, grabbed my gun, and off I went to catch up to these wolves to try and shoot them, because they were running up the river, where the tracks were. So, anyways, I follow these tracks, I get about, oh, it was quite a ways, uh, seven, eight miles upstream before I finally caught up to these guys, and I managed to shoot two, and uh, one took off running while I was shooting two. And uh, I, probably another five minutes later, I caught up to the other one, and I shot that one just as it was getting off into some trees. And so I was quite proud of myself. I just got three <laughs> wolves. And uh, so I grabbed that wolf, pulled it down to the down to the river where my skidoo was, and tied it on the back, and I turned my snowmobile around in the middle of the river and I was I was just turning the snowmobile the ice gave out and uh, it dropped about three feet but not didn't drop me quite into the river but half of my snowmobile ended up in the river just enough to get my dry belt wet which my machine weighs about 800 pounds and without your dry belt being dry you're not going to move it and my come along was back at my skimmer and uh so anyways, uh, I knew I wouldn't get out until I went back, got a come along, chainsaw and all that. And I got my sat phone out and was going to call my dad, just let him know that I went through the ice. I'm safe, but I may need a hand, which it would take him at least 24 hours to get there. It's a very long ways. Uh, sat phone was dead. Um, I don't even know why it just wasn't working. So no way to get a hold of anybody. So I just started walking back to my my skimmer and uh about two in the morning i ended up getting back to my skimmer and i was soaking wet cold miserable no food and uh ended up digging a hole in a snowbank there where there's a little bit of wood got a fire going kind of slept for a couple hours and it was just too cold couldn't really sleep so i grabbed the chainsaw put it in my backpack come along and i walked all the way back up there and uh 
and I was just hoping I could get it out myself and get it running and everything because it was it was a long ways from my cabin. I was at least 90 kilometers from my cabin, a lot of walking in snow. That's a very long walk. And uh, I made it back there at probably 3 or 4 o'clock the next day and was able to cut a hole in the ice behind the snowmobile um, right through, dropped a big log in there, used that as an anchor point, winched myself back out with the come-along Luckily, the transmission oil wasn't jeopardized with the water and all that, and uh, was able to get it running, and off I went and made it all the way home um, that night, and uh, yeah, slept for pretty much 24 hours straight, and was just going to leave to go home, because I hadn't called in the sat phone for three days or something, and yeah, I woke up at like eight in the morning and ready to get going and start, and uh all of a sudden, here a snowmobile coming, and my dad had decided to. He couldn't sleep that night, you know, after yeah. a couple nights not hearing. So, and he thought it, he knew I was capable, but, you know, he started wondering. And off he came. He uh, came to find me. And, and uh, so everything was all fine from there. But yeah, in that blizzard, he'd had a horrible time finding his way in because he didn't even know my trails and all my snowmobile tracks had been blown in. And wow. So he kind of just dead reckoned out there, and it's kind of neat. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a deal. It was a. Well, I mean, because you're in the middle of nowhere as it is, but man, you add winter on top of it, like that kind of heavy winter. It's the thing. Cold is hard because as soon as you walk, you get sweated, and then you can't dry out. And you freeze. And you're, it's just cold. Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite memories of you actually is when I, one of my first seasons, I came in and helped you out on your last moose hunt when Mark Harrison was in there, and. Uh, both me and Mark were stuffed in those little deck chairs at the front of the Coal River, just freezing our asses off. And I remember yeah. thinking, I'm not dressed for this occasion. And I remember looking back at you, and you're wearing like a like a tiny little, <laughs> it wasn't even a puffer jacket, it was just like a hoodie mm-hmm. and a baseball cap standing up in the full wind of the jet boat, driving, big smile on your face. <laughs> I mean, man, that, <laughs> it's a different definition of what cold is going through this guy's brain. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an interesting question. From your perspective, so you've had, how many years did you guide in New Zealand? I think I did eight seasons. Yeah, so you've got way more guiding experience in New Zealand than I have, than I have. And you work primarily for Kiwi Safaris, but that was a combination of estate and free-range tar hunting, both on public and private land. Yep. In the last couple of days, we've talked about it a little bit, but our conservation minister has decided that she wants to basically eradicate Tar. Well, she's going to bring eradicate them from Mount Cook National Park and the West Coast, um, and then bring the numbers down severely in other places. I can't off the top of my head, but before the end of November, seventeen and a half thousand. By next year, thirty thousand. When they estimate the population being somewhere between twenty five and fifty thousand. So, if it's twenty five thousand, it's complete eradication with mm. those numbers. Yeah. But from your perspective both as an outfitter and with your experience in New Zealand, how does that sort of sit with you, the idea that they're planning on knocking them way back? I'm actually quite sick to my stomach about it because tar was my favorite animal while I was in New Zealand. Um, I got to experience them on the West Coast and totally different terrain than over, um, well... In the Mackenzie. In the Mackenzie Valley. It's just not as rugged and all that, but yeah. In each habitat I've seen them, they're just like in awe of them. They're beautiful animals. They're they're pretty much endangered in their home country. And like it's well, it's such a good thing in New Zealand. And yes, they have to be controlled. It's just it is sick to hear that they may completely eradicate them out in places. And you know what? They're they're super hardy animals. If fewer left, you know, yeah. they they'll do their thing. But um it's yeah, it is sickening to hear. And uh seen a lot of smiles in people's faces while hunting them from all over the world and and just seeing them yeah it's cool we'd go out and we'd see on private land free range you could see 500 tar in some places and uh they did calling and stuff there like it was a healthy population but not overpopulated and i didn't see any land erosion or excess vegetation taken out but we'd shoot one one bowl and just viewed a lot it was really cool to see yeah. I mean, it really, we've had it pretty good in New Zealand for 25 years, really, when it comes to tar. And in the, you know, I don't want to say in the defense of Department of Conservation, because they're definitely on my 
shit books at the moment, but I mean, the, the management plan is there and it hasn't really been followed and there are too many tar currently. Yeah. And the Department of Conservation has in a bit of a windfall in terms of funding and pest control at the moment. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not, especially under the um, guidance of Eugene Sage, who's always been an outspoken against quote-unquote pests in New Zealand, which includes tar, deer, yep. you know, ship rats, wallabies, possums, the mm-hmm. whole lot. There's no real separation as far as I can tell in her mentality between them. Yeah. So I sort of could certainly see this coming, and it was, I guess, hunters need to put their hand up and say that we haven't really done anything to get in front of the curve, and now we're in the position that we're in, and now it's a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. But tar themselves are such a fantastic resource so i've got so much more potential than you know they're being realized as a resource now they bring in millions tens of millions of dollars worth of tourism revenue mm-hmm. um, i mean the aussies come over and hunt them all the time not to mention the free range or the recreational hunters in new zealand yeah it's a big part of our culture as hunters now in new zealand absolutely the hunter mm-hmm. but they've got such a massive value i think i think they're hugely undervalued not just by outfitters but by kiwis in general we don't know yep. how lucky we are yeah because, I mean, I've hunted them in Nepal and I've hunted a lot of different other mountain animals around the world. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't know what the going rate for a free-range tar in New Zealand is for an American. I think it's between five and $6,000 for a trophy fee. Yeah, probably. But when you put that against other mountain goats around the world, I mean, how much do you it's charge cheap. for your your Rocky Mountain, your mountain goats here in Yukon? $15,600 with, US. Yeah, US. That includes everything. Yeah. So they are as they're a different hunt and there are more of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that they're probably not worth that fifteen thousand, but they are definitely worth more than five, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity to use them as more of a resource to actually fund their own management and control. Mm-hmm. Like if you got smart about it mm-hmm. and hunters got on board and understood that we needed to be a little bit more responsible with our hunting opportunities like mm-hmm. if we don't want doc to jump in and cull thirty thousand animals at the drop of a hat we also need to give up some of our freedom to hunt them when we want how we want and shoot as many as we want mm-hmm. management means management and if you're going to manage them then that has to come from all sides so there's going to be comp- has to be compromise from everybody mm-hmm. but yeah as you and i've discussed in the last couple of days if there's any positive to come out of this is the first time i've seen all hunting groups in new zealand be equally outraged and pissed off together yeah which you never know might be the start of something might be the catalyst we all needed to get off our asses i hope it is that's uh tar's just one thing yeah well deer will be next yeah deer chamois just you know (laughs) it's 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 an interesting situation it really is um if you had this is a question we ask most people but if you had an unlimited budget and you could hunt anywhere in the world for any time, any animal, what would you do? Um, I feel like this is a very common answer, but uh, Marco Polo is definitely at the top of my list. It's not a common answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, Marco Polo and Tajikistan would probably be right up there. And uh, kind of would like a, a hunt that was not rushed and actually get to go and experience them. Good luck getting that in Tajikistan. Yeah. <laughs> How big your tip? Yeah. Yeah. How big? Yeah. And yeah. then you determine what you actually can go and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> bit like that, but I've never hunted them. So I can't yeah. really, uh, any kind of, just word of mouth. But. Yeah. That's, that's probably the, the main one. And then quite honestly, after that, I budget means nothing, but I really can't get enough moose hunting. Like yeah. during the rut, I just, it's, I don't know. That's something I could do every single year. And Tell me about your moose that you've got on your wall in your house. <laughs> yeah, I got a very special bowl, once-in-a-lifetime bowl, and quite very fortunate to get it. I've looked at a lot of moose in my life, and I've I've only shot one moose in my life, um, just being a guide and always having meat and all that. And I did go hunting a couple times and just passed up bowls that were nice, but I really didn't need the meat, so I just didn't shoot one. And, uh, two years ago, actually three years ago now, um, right in the middle of our season, once 
got everybody out to camps. Everything was going smoothly for once uh, with planes and weather. My <laughs> wife convinced me. She said, you need to go hunting. So we actually, we got up early the next day and we went for the day. We didn't hunt within our area to create conflict. We actually went to a resident only area. So uh, heavily hunted. We were just getting away for the day, just having a, a day out. And we had probably one of the best days moosing I've ever had. We've seen upwards of probably 12 bull moose, three giants, one of which I actually was lucky enough to take. And uh, yeah, it was just a once in a lifetime bull and got to call him in. My wife was there, our dog, and yeah, it was a neat, really neat deal. How big is he? Uh, 72 and a half inches. And okay, so let's just stop that. So 72 and a half inches, that's... Just under six feet? Uh, six feet, I think, exactly. Hang on, six feet. Wide, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if anyone's trying to visualize that, imagine standing the horns up end on end. They're six feet tall. Yeah. And then what did he score? Uh, 249 Boone and Crockett. So that's the length of the palm, width of the palm, and then you count the number of points on each side, and then you get 249 inches. Wow, and then in terms of a Alaskan Yukon moose, which is the species there, where does that sit in terms of size? Uh, quite honestly, I didn't actually look too closely, but I think it's around 10 to, 10 to 15 in the world, I think. Ever shot? Ever shot, yeah. Wow, that is an amazing bull. Speaking of top things you've ever shot, I had a, did a podcast with Jordan yesterday, old tin-ass hunt in my Red Bands gumboots. <laughs> you know, I think I'll go sheep hunting today. Yeah. That's some sheep you guys got this year. Yeah, it's it's a very special sheep, and we're, we feel very lucky to get it because we only harvest one or two rams a year. We have a limited population, and we knew we had a good a good genetic area for sure in one of our camps and we've pulled some pretty big sheep in the past out of there but they're very erratic and i don't actually even sell a sheep hunt there you know sell it as a goat hunt and if you see a sheep then oh, here you go type yeah. of thing so that's pretty much what happened yeah they uh yeah they uh, went up to a valley where there were sheep because a guy got a moose and was you know hoping to find a sheep and yeah, they found a once-in-a-lifetime ram, one of the largest ones ever killed, ever. In the Yukon. In the Yukon, Which, yeah. for the last, I mean, they've been keeping records for Boone and Crockett for, what, 120 years? Yeah, something like that. And it's going to go number one or two, you reckon? Uh, I would say probably three or four for okay. Boone and Crockett. SCI, yeah. um, Safari Club, which would be, I think, 50 or 60 years of records, it would be in their top because uh, just with the scoring system, they don't use the deductions. Right. So this guy had a few deductions, which drops him down for Boone and Crockett with the symmetry thing. So right. SCI, he'll be right up there for yeah. sure. So for those who are listening who are used to, we use the Douglas score in New Zealand. So Boone and Crockett is actually quite similar to Douglas score. You basically get to double your weakest side, if yeah, that makes exactly. sense, or your weakest me measurement. Whereas yeah. SCI, you just measure everything and add it together. Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations. That's quite something. It hasn't really hit the hit the media yet. You haven't said much about it. Is that a tactic or you No, I I threw a couple of pictures up and it, it made its rounds a little bit but didn't uh completely go around too much. I, I didn't promote it all that much because we don't have a lot of sheep hunting and and uh I don't know. I feel like in the winter time once the official scores go out then you might hear a little bit more about it. Yeah. Well good for you. You do a bit on Instagram and social media, and I, I think that, I mean, there's, we, me and Curran deal with a lot of outfitters in Canada, and there's sort of what I call the new generation of outfitters, guys our age who are sort of not new in the business, but the sort of the next generation, and then you've got the old school guys who are, um, you know, how do you describe them? They're like old school station owners in New Zealand. Yeah. Very set in their ways, been doing things their way, yeah. and they're you know, the idea of social media and good pictures and Facebook and Instagram is basically may as well be yeah. <laughs> yeah, shooting way <laughs> over the head, right? So in terms of, do you have any kind of, what's your following like on Instagram? And does it, do you get clients through it, do you think? Or is it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of one of my selfish tactics for uh, living in the Yukon because, 
Um, to generate hunts, generally you have to go out to shows, whether they're in Canada, United States, or Germany, and all those kinds of places. And it's nice seeing places, but I, I love home. I love trapping and all that. So doing those shows that eats up a lot of your life, um, traveling, living in hotels, attending these big conventions. And by I seen a little potential in social media probably five years ago and I started with Facebook and built up a following and I don't know how many followers or likes I have but probably close to 50,000 likes I think and uh, I I definitely noticed a few people booking from that and so I just continued made, made it a habit and then my wife actually got me onto Instagram which I hate to admit, but two years ago, I didn't even know what it was. And <laughs> Well, I mean, I follow on Instagram, and you're very yeah. consistent with your content, which is part of the battle. Yeah. It's just being consistent, and the pictures on there are, are good, and your followers and people who comment seem to be positive and Yeah, it's, it's a battle um, with that, actually, because uh, it looks all clean and legit on there, but uh, I've handed over probably at least a dozen serious death threats um to the police off of those any negativity at all even somebody saying oh that's a small moose instantly deleted and blocked they're no longer allowed on the page um anything positive stays on there and uh basically yeah it's it's a good tool for sure i use it um because it does help me get out and you know sort of stay home and do our own thing look after animals get things ready for the season versus bombing around doing shows and i i like it i I love following people with good stuff and i know it's nice to be able to share and yeah it is i mean it's a nice little community as you say there's always the extremists that get on there and ruin it for everybody and Mm -hmm. you know i get death threats everybody who hunts gets death threats which is kind of counterintuitive and sad it's a horrible reflection of human nature yeah and i'd you know, I'm a firm believer that those people would certainly never do it to your face, but for some reason, yeah. from the comfort of their own living room, yeah. they feel like they can, yeah. you know, say horrible things to good people. But in saying that, I remember, um, how long ago was it when you put up that video of that moose um, <laughs> on YouTube? Yeah, it's been a few years now. Um, I, I have a glance at it maybe once a year just to see how many people have actually viewed it, but yeah. I, I think it's knocking on 4 million views now and, uh, just a random clip. I had a, a handy cam yeah. <laughs> in my hand and called in this bowl and, uh, this bow hunter waited till hey, he's probably three yards away from us. Moose was front on and kind of at a standstill for a while. And then finally he chose to take the front on shot and the moose ran away, but yeah, it uh, it's generated a lot of views, and yeah, it's it's kind of a cool clip. It is a cool clip, and you showed me the one um, the other night of what's his name? Is it Pat? Oh, Pat Reeve. Yeah, yeah. Pat Reeve's one. Yeah. Do you do you use any of that footage on social media, or do you stay away from the video stuff? Yeah, no, I I do. Um, some of the TV shows we work with, uh, I usually get them to throw me some good clips, and whether or not it's an actual, you know shooting an animal or just some neat footage of riding through some streams yeah. or things like that. And I, I throw them up there and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's good. I, I pretty much use mostly pictures, but, uh, the video thing is I do throw them up there myself. We don't run a lot of video yeah. equipment with our outfit. My guides don't, so we don't have access to a lot, but when we get it, yeah, we definitely yeah put it out there. So you mentioned, your wife, Courtney, who um, obviously lives with you here in, in Watson Lake. And, you know, when we first met, as you said, you were doing 28 days at home, which, I mean, I probably understand might better than most. It's pretty hard to hold down a, a full-time relationship. Did you ever think that you'd end up a, a 60-year-old guide bachelor? Yep, I did. I was actually shocked. I actually gave up on finding somebody. And, uh, I wasn't concerned at all, but I was, you know, hoping to find somebody that could share a lifestyle with, I had a very, very strict criteria cause I was not going to give up on anything. I had to find somebody like-minded that would do stuff with me. Didn't mind going trapping, you know, all that stuff. I didn't just want a wife that sat in a house and whatever. So, yeah. 
yeah, I wanted somebody to share experiences and yeah, I got quite lucky, you I guess did. five or six years ago. Yeah. And she's, um, obviously adapted to life up here pretty well. His sister has now moved up here and her parents. Is that correct? Yeah. Her mother's moved up and her sister and yeah, her sister. You've basically doubled the population of Watson Lake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it did. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome because I mean, she's, I've sort of watched her, she's pretty active on the Instagram and stuff as well. And she's, you know, she's got her own things going on up here as well with, you know, she's obviously heavily into horses. Yes. You learn a bit from about horses? A lot. Yeah. I, I've used horses. I consider myself very good with horses, but I didn't understand the fundamentals and why they do this or that. And and I I learned some of the most basic things that I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I didn't know about horses. One being when a horse relaxes, it actually yawns. It's yeah. being cool situation. I had no clue. I've, <laughs> I've ridden them <laughs> yeah. for 30 years and I didn't know that. And yeah, just a few things like that. She's really into training and the well-being of a horse, muscle structure, different training. So they're properly muscled for the jobs they're doing, which, you know, being in an outfitting string, we have a lot of horses. We have some guides that are really good, other guides with not as much experience um, so yeah, it'd be, it, it, it was an eye opener to, uh, uh, that part of the world and, uh, why maybe a few of our horses were a little, you know, got hurt or different things. A little and, angry at times. Yeah. A little angry, a little grumpy and yeah. yeah, why they were doing this and that. And yeah, it kind of made a little sense for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I see her a lot of riding. I see she shoots a bow off the top of a horse, which I think is quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, she was. She's been into that for a couple of years, and she wants to do more. But just it's obviously a very busy lifestyle. And she did a clinic last spring, and uh, I was going to be there anyway. And so we actually signed up, and her sister and Jordan, and we did this clinic all together, and it was an absolute blast. One of the so funnest a clinic things. on horseback archery. Yeah, so they teach you how to shoot traditionally with a recurve bow. Yeah, um, no shelf on it, so you can shoot off either side of the bow shoot with your fingers so they teach you how to shoot how to reload so you're not looking so you can knock arrows you can hold up to 10 arrows in your hand while holding your bow and just pulling arrows and shooting like rapid fire so you're taught that and then you're taught how to shoot off of a horse and uh the horses are obviously well trained that's why the clinic makes sense is because this guy's horses are already ready to go so you can learn how to shoot the bow, then you hop on the horse, and then you go and shoot. Um, there's usually a laneway about 100 meters long, and the target's along the side, and then you just ride along and shoot at the target. So and, you're giving her on the horse, like you're galloping, or you start That comes with experience, but right. <laughs> yeah, we our final day where we were going to do the, the canter and shoot, uh, we got about an inch of rain, and the track was slippery, oh, so boy. he didn't feel comfortable, which none of us did either (laughs) (laughs) riding on a slippery track trying to shoot arrows off a horse and yeah so but anyways yeah we can all you know walk and shoot quite easily and yeah yeah, we actually built a track ourselves and yeah i noticed that had big plans and uh yeah we ran out of time well the trouble is you're doing outfitting which is logistically heavy so you're always busy outfitting i'm lucky to have you for an hour to do this um but the other thing that you've been heavily into lately is bees yeah, again, that came with my wife. I had no idea. I thought anything, little insect that flew around was a bee. <laughs> Wasps, hornets, everything. Thing. It was all the same to me, and she educated me. And and uh, I really didn't want anything to do with it, but it was a major passion of hers. So I just went along to help a few times. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. And next thing you know, I'm right in there, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> It's yeah, very peaceful and it's just, I don't know, it's a cool thing. Yeah, because I mean, there's probably a lot of people in New Zealand who can relate to beekeeping. It's a, yeah, you know, Manuka honey is a, huge, a thing. huge thing. But the honey here is produced from fireweed, which is. So it's a, it's our Nash, well, our Yukon flower. It's a large flower. Uh, it's very pink, purple. It comes in after a big forest fire goes through the country. The hillside will be just be purple and pink. It's yeah. a beautiful flower. Anyways, uh, the honey is almost pure, like clean, like it looks like water. When you put it in a jar, you can see through the jar and it, you, you, you have to like roll it over and get some air bubbles before you can tell there's actually anything in it. It is just amazingly clear. 
Uh, Manuka honey is one of the most valuable honeys in the world, most medicinal. Um, it's got a very strong flavor. Fireweed is very, very mild, and it's actually known as like the champagne of all honeys. You know, it's yeah. just like a flavor. It's just a really very nice I've flavor. I've tried some. It's really good. It's, um, how would yeah. you describe it? It's it's sweet. Yeah. It is really sweet. But, you know, Manuka honey, as you say, has got a real consistent taste, and so does clover honey for that matter. Yeah. Like it's a very characteristic case, but fireweed, yeah. yeah, it's it's beautiful honey. Yeah, has it got any medicinal purposes like the manuka? Or? It, it does. It, I'm not sure the total deal on on manuka, but uh, I know there's different values and stuff. But yeah. it, it's any raw honey is good for you. Good it for doesn't you. matter. It's it's got all the good stuff in it. Uh, it's just not as medicinally proven as manuka, and I feel like it's not as good medicinally, but it's still. Pretty damn good. It's good. Yeah. I mean, you're not having any trouble shifting it here in the Yukon. Are you? No, we we sell out. We get a limited quantity just because of our short season. Our bees have to survive a minus fifty Celsius winter, so it's a challenge keeping bees in the Yukon <laughs> and keeping them awake, <laughs> Keep, keeping them alive. Yeah. And also, we put them out there, and then you have to deal with bears, grizzly bears, black bears getting into them, and yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, that's that's certainly something that the New Zealand beekeepers don't have to deal with. Is the Yogi the bear getting in there and sort yeah. of it's almost like a stereotypical bear with his finger in the honey pot, but oh yeah, you smashing your hives and they just totally destroy everything. It's amazing. The bees get on them and it doesn't seem to help. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, they'll just they'll have thousands of bees on them getting stung and they don't care. They just Keep they're just digging in. Well, I can imagine that. Have you? Do you use? How, is there any way you can stop them getting in there? Uh, we use electric fences, and that's got a very good success rate, but it is not; it does not work all the time, for sure. Right. Uh, we ran into a problem this year where a bear did get into one of our yards, and it, we got a we ended up having a drought. So my ground, the only thing I can think of was the ground got too dry, which didn't give a good ground, which obviously it reflects on the voltage in your wire. So that's my my thinking of why the bear actually got in there. Yeah, and he was probably. He's quite happy after eating five complete hives. Five hives? Yeah, with probably five, six hundred pounds of honey. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different thing to deal with, the cold and bears. Yeah. That's really cool. Oh, well. Have you got any, well, what would be your advice for someone who's, you know, looking at getting into the hunting industry, either as a guide or, let's just say as a guide, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them? Well, obviously what you and Kieran have is amazing. If there's those kind of sets setups anywhere, that's like the best way to go. Like right. you get trained, they get put into the industry with reputable people and you've got like a secure job. And I think it's amazing. Like that would be the first step. I think trying to get into the industry, like even in Canada, just a Canadian, some 18 year old kid out in the like from the farm trying to step into the industry it's very tough yeah um, our entry-level position is a wrangler which is just a guide in training you know kind of doing everything type of thing but learning even that position it's it's hard to get your foot in the door unless you've you know been pestering somebody and all that so i don't know a guide school um yeah. you know if you're in canada that's that's probably one of the better ways they'll you know, if you show that you're a capable person and not expecting the world for nothing, I think you'll be noticed. Yeah. Do you, I know you have a number of First Nations guides working for you and have over the years. Um, do you still get young First Nations First Nation guys coming on board or is it sort of a drying up? Yeah, it, it's, it is, it seems to be a dying thing, unfortunately. Uh, we've, We've had well, our local tribe is Casca First Nations, and they're definitely known for their hunting abilities. Like, it's a beautiful spot here, but the climate is very harsh, and uh, game populations are not, like, in abundance. You have to work hard to find your animals. Anyway, so they're, they're known for being good hunters. They survived here all these years, and uh, yeah, they made great guides, and uh, the younger population is definitely and it's not just first nations it's just young people in general seem to be a little more occupied in town and not really 
wanting to step away from an iPhone for two months and, you know, go out and hunt and do yeah. stuff. But yeah, so I wouldn't it's say a it's a shame because I mean, some of your guys that you've had over the past are legends in the trade. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've got two guys working for me right now. And, and the unfortunate part is one is 50 years old and he's the youngest guy we've had for a while. Like it's, there's just no age no young guys coming through. Um, I've had a couple, but uh, they they would have been great guides. But you know what? It's it's a hard industry to make a full year income out of. So I had a few come out and wrangle, have a great time, and then choose the different career. Which that's yeah, that's part of life. Yeah, I mean, guiding as a career is a really hard thing to do. It's a, it's a young single man's job, yeah. or a, something that you could come back to when you're a little bit older and you can afford the time to go away and. And, and be in the mountains, which I guess is why for a time there you thought you were going to be a, you know, a, a bachelor yep. living the wild backcountry life. Yeah. Because it's, as you said with Courtney, you really need to have somebody who wants to buy into the lifestyle. Yeah. And it's an often a misconception from people who don't know much about outfitting that, you know, they see, they hear the big numbers and the, the costs of the hunts and they just think that people are getting making millions off this stuff but when you actually understand the infrastructure and the logistics it's a beaver flying over our head right now yep (laughs) hunters are coming in here they come (laughs) um yeah the the infrastructure and the logistics and the overheads it's not a get rich type thing business it's a it's literally a lifestyle you have to live it you know year in year out and doing what you guys do up here from everything from your you know, your predator control in the winter to your, you know, your show season, selling your hunts, your marketing, right through to, you know, your actual operations and your hunts and then, you know, upkeep of cabins, fixing them after grizzly bears get in there and do some interior decorating for you, you know, yeah. building new cabins, opening up new country. Yeah. It's a it's a full-time, full-year job and there's not a lot of, um, you, you really got to love what you do. There's not a lot of glamour in it. No, no, there isn't. It is, it is a complete lifestyle. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, you're not going to get rich at it, but you can make a comfortable living and it's, I don't know, it's, there's very few people in it to make a name for themselves. And if they are, they're probably running around with a video camera filming somehow, like, and, and that's cool in its own way. And I'll tell you what, I got a lot of respect for those people because I couldn't imagine the extra work involved of trying to document a lifestyle like this. Like yeah. it's mind blowing just being, though, that's an added step to what I'm doing. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's cool to see. I like to see that, but yeah. So you have all sorts. Uh, yeah. Most people, there's a lot of family run businesses. Um, and then you have a few people that, maybe did get into it financially but it's i think it's very very few yeah it's hard to be a long-term person if your motivations to make money get rich yeah and it's you know the the good outfits and most of the outfits that we deal with are exactly that they're family-run lifestyle choice outfits mm-hmm. yeah that's really cool well unless you've got any finding parting words of wisdom or Something, a burning story you've got on your chest. You're like, I need to tell the world this story. <laughs> I, uh, I'm totally ill prepared because I would have thought a little bit harder and brought one to the table about you. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, there's none of those, <laughs> none of those stories. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'll probably um, nail you down again next year and Sounds have a follow up con- conversation. But thanks for having me up here for what it's worth. Oh, uh, thanks I've, for. Thanks for taking time out of your busy life to actually come up here. That was great. Well, it's kind of like I try to explain it to people. It's like having putting the needle in your arm. Like it's an addictive mm-hmm. feeling just being out in the wilderness and, and guiding. And, yeah. you know, I love guiding. I love, you know, yeah. making people's dreams come true. <laughs> I yeah. know it sounds cheesy and it sounds. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and I my, I guess my hunter that I've had, um, for the one hunt that I was in before we got pulled out because of the ice, but he, you know, he was a big dude yeah. and he was, you know, it took a few, a few days, but he sort of confided to me how nervous he was about coming up because of his, you know, because of his weight and his hips buggered and, mm-hmm. you know, his knees are buggered and his back's buggered and his shoulders buggered and, yeah. you know, he was genuinely scared. So there's a challenge in every client and getting him mm-hmm. next to a 
moose on the side of a mountainside is not a yeah. it's not an easy task and I relish that kind of challenge like yeah. that's if you had to nail it down I think that's what I enjoy the most about it yeah and then being in an environment where all those little things that you've learned over the years you know growing up on a farm mm-hmm. you know all that kind of practical stuff you know hunting a lot you know videoing around the world being part of the you know all of those little skills that are basically worthless out in the real world quote end quote all come together to make you know as a guide it's the one place where all those things sort of seem to click for me which is i think is part of the reason why i enjoy it so much yeah yeah so for me it's a it was a no-brainer to come up here and yeah and and do a bit yeah when i had that opening i kind of asked you and just sort of going through the motions not really expecting a yes (laughs) so i felt i was quite excited when i got a yes so that was cool i appreciate that it's uh Maybe next year. We'll come back again. You never know. Life's a funny thing. Yep. That would be awesome. Yeah, buddy. All right. We'll count it there. We better check out respective phones. Both of them have been buzzing like crazy throughout this whole thing. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining, or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives, and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram, at theeducatedhunter, or finally, join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and catch you on the clearing.